Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Hey, listen, as we've been going through, John, I've made a couple observations that I think are super important, at least as I've been reading through and as I look at what's going on here, and I wanted to pass them on to you. You may have made some of your own observations, but I'm going to share with you mine because they are fairly important to what I want to do this morning. And the first observation that I have noticed as we're walking through John is Jesus is unconventional. He does not act as expected. And so when, when we see this, and we're just like now five chapters into it, but as we're, as we're walking through this, we are seeing things like him telling Nicodemus, you must be born again, and Nicodemus not understanding. He's, he's using language that people don't understand. He's, he's speaking in a way and acting in a way. When he clears the, when he clears the temple and, and causes a ruckus in the temple back in chapter one or two, whenever that was, these are all things that if you were trying to make a name for yourself or if you're trying to really uh, begin something, you'd want to come with, with clarity and with, that you would fit within people's expectations, and Jesus doesn't do this. He's unconventional in how he approaches uh, ministry and approaches his interaction with other people. Secondly, he's intentional. I never see Jesus caught like with something unexpected going on. He, he knows what's happening. He doesn't find himself in a place or in a conversation that he didn't expect. He's, he's approaching life and ministry with in, incredible intentionality uh, with, with how he has conversations and where he goes with conversations. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back to that uh, this morning. But those are two, two real important ideas. And if you think about his conversation with the woman at the well, which we didn't really talk about last week, but as Peter mentioned uh, he had done it a, a couple months before. Uh, that conversation, his com- conversation with Nicodemus, very, very pointed in, in what he was going for. And even last week uh, with the, the official whose son Jesus healed, very intentional with how he had that conversation. So if you didn't get a chance to uh, hear Pastor Peter last week, who, by the way, is uh, celebrating a family wedding uh, this afternoon. And so that's where he's at in case you wondered uh, what's going on with that. Uh, but check the podcast from last week and get caught up with uh, what he uh, did at the end of uh, chapter 4. So before we jump into this in chapter 5, because the same is true, there is great intentionality, uh, and, and Jesus is not conventional in how he handles things here in chapter 5. But before we jump into chapter 5, I want to uh, tell you a story. Some of you are going to remember this. Others of you um, won't remember this, but it, it the story begins on April 1st, 2015. And on April 1st, 2015, I was in San Vicente, Mexico uh, on our spring uh, mission trip that we do every year. And it was the last day of our trip. We were having a little carnival for the kids. And so we were there at the church uh, property. And uh, those of you that have been there know there's a, there's a trench that's been at that church for almost as long as we've been going there. And we... We just deal with it. It's there. We, we work around it. This particular day, I was going to step over this trench 
uh, which I've done dozens of times before. And I stepped over the trench, but I didn't push off quite hard enough to carry myself all the way over the trench. So I was kind of, my momentum was bringing me backwards. So I reached back with my leg to catch myself and it just felt like my leg exploded, which ultimately is really what happened. Uh, I tore the tendon off the top of my kneecap. Yeah. So I was, I was crumpled up on the ground and my good friend Gary Rocha, I said, hey, I told whoever came in, and so they tried to carry, you know, they tried to help, help me walk to the church to lay down. I couldn't even walk because my legs just kind of, you know, hanging there. My good friend Gary Rocha thinks it's April Fool's joke, okay, because it's April 1st. So they go tell Gary Rocha, hey, Jeff's had this accident. He goes, yeah, right, sure, you know. So anyway, we, we pack up everything. We come home. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but, but God was very faithful in, in getting, you know, treatment for me. However, there was a, a time between when I got back and I went to see the doctor and when they would do the surgery. And here's the thing. Any of you that have ever had uh, any kind of injury or whatever, it's not good to start searching the Internet <laughs> for information about, you know, your particular situation. But that's what I did. I had some time. Uh, so I started looking looking for a good, I was looking for a feel-good story. Somebody that was going to tell the story of their injury that, hey, it's no big deal. You know what? They fixed it. It was, everything was fine. I mean, I looked story after story. People were saying, this is the worst injury I've ever had. It's taken me two years to get back to normal. So I'm sitting there waiting, you know, this is the week between the, when it happened and when I could get surgery. And I'm sitting there and I mean, the, the, the more I read, the more depressed I get. So I start thinking like, okay, well, what's it gonna, you know, what's it gonna be like? You know, I might as well just figure worst case scenario. You know, I'm never gonna walk again. My, my, my legs all swollen up and, um, and I mean, I can't even, uh, I mean, there's just basic things I can't do. People have to take me to the, the doctor's appointments. I'm totally dependent on other people. It, it's a mess. And so more and more, I'm, I'm you know, realizing my lack of, de of independence and my dependence on other people, and it's becoming more and more just kind of hopeless. Uh, and thankfully, you know, as I work through it, obviously I stand before you today, everything is, uh, my knee's never going to be the same, but at least I can do everything that, that I need to do, and I'm grateful about that. So as, we, as you think about that, that is not too far from what we want to look at today in John chapter 5. So if you have your Bible today, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at a man who was in a very desperate, hopeless situation, uh, and this is, this is what it says. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there was in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So here we've got uh, Jesus coming back up to Jerusalem. There's a feast going on. We're not really sure which of the Jewish feasts it was. John doesn't seem to be as concerned about chronology and, and exact dates as some of the other gospel writers are, but he's, he's uh, letting us know that Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And there's a pool there, this pool of Bethesda. They've done the archaeology. It was there. It was a, kind of these two uh, bathing pools that were indeed surrounded by some covered um, uh, kind of shade porch areas. And our story tells us that there was a multitude of people there that were paralyzed, that were lame, that were blind. And we don't have a number, but a multitude to me begins to make me think that we're talking hundreds of people, likely. And I've seen kind of recreated pictures of this pool of Bethesda. It was quite large, so hundreds, I think, is a, is a reasonable uh, expectation for us. So that's kind of the scene. Jesus walks into this, to this area, and there's the hundreds of people that are in need uh, before him. Now, before we go any further into the story, uh, some of you that are looking at your Bible, you may notice that as you're reading along, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. There's not a verse 4. If you have the NIV uh, or a newer translation, verse 4 is probably down in a footnote somewhere in your Bible. And so we need to, I want to take a moment and talk about that. Uh, first of all, let me read to you uh, what verse 4 said. Verse 4 says this. It says, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. That's what verse 4 says. And there's probably a note along with the fact that it got dropped down to the footnote or to the foot of your page that it says something to the effect of, the earliest manuscripts or the best manuscripts do not include verse 4. So I wanted to touch on that for a second because I, I just wonder as you think about reading your Bible and, and wanting to really be confident that, hey, is my Bible reliable? Can I trust the Bible? Or do I need to worry about when I read verses, well, it, was that there or was that added or how did that happen or why did verse 4 get taken out? And you may know people that don't trust the Bible, that believe the Bible is a, full of myths or is not accurate or has a lot of mistakes in it. So I wanted to speak to that just for a minute because I want you to leave here confidently that what you have in front of you and what you hold is the Word of God. So rather than being thrown for a loop, let's look at why this happened the way that it did. The people that uh, made sure that the Bible got uh, translated and transmitted accurately when it was first being done 
There was no printing press. People were copying by hand what was written. So at some point, there was an original book of John. We don't have that anymore. In fact, we do not have any original copies of any of the Bible texts. So we are relying on copies of copies of copies, that manuscripts were copied. And there were people with the express job of making these copies and making sure that what they were copying was done accurately, as accurately as humanly possible as it was transmitted. And so what we have, uh, when, we, when we talk about this, we're talking about a science called textual criticism. That's what this science is. And there are, there are people who's committed their life to this whole idea of, of making sure that we can reproduce accurately what the original said as they look at these uh, manuscripts. So when you look at the manuscript evidence for the New Testament in particular, there's a couple big ideas that we want to we look at. The, the first big idea is what do we have in the way of manuscripts? What do these manuscripts look like? And so we have 25,000 partial or full manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, which is an overwhelming uh, number of manuscripts. In addition to that, we've got 30 plus thousand quotations in other extra biblical literature that quote from the New Testament itself. So we can reproduce uh, all of the New Testament from these manuscripts and these quotations. It can all be uh, you know, reproduced and, and compared for accuracy. So we, we look at the overwhelming amount of manuscripts and it's, it's impressive. We've got, uh, in, in Greek alone, we have 6,000 manuscripts. And if you, if you know the, the time that the New Testament was written, uh, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, was not written in English. I hope you knew that. Jesus didn't speak English. I hope you knew that. So it was written in Greek. And so we've got 6,000 Greek manuscripts. So we've got an overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence. The second thing, though, we have to ask is, what's the accuracy? How accurate are these manuscripts to one another as we compare them to one another? And, and then how can we retrace them back to the original and be confident that what we have is accurate to what was originally written by John or, or spoken by Jesus and that kind of thing? So when we look at that, they do this comparison. They, they, they compare manuscript to manuscript, and they can date a lot of these things. And there, there are some that are older than others. And some translations, some older uh, translations that we have used manuscripts that were available at the time. And since those translations have been made, new manuscripts have been discovered. So you, if you have a King James version today, you will, verse 4 is included in the King James version, but it's excluded in more uh, modern translations because of discoveries that have been made. So they're always working to make sure that we've got what we have in our hand is as accurate as it uh, possibly can be. So that manuscript evidence is, is super important. And th the second big idea, though, is, okay, so we've got manuscript evidence for the New Testament. How close is it in time to when it was originally written? And so we need to know, first of all, that a lot of other ancient literature that we accept as accurate and as authoritative has... If the, if the New Testament has thousands of manuscripts, these other Greek or these other ancient writings have, in some cases, hundreds or only dozens of copies, and no one ever questions it. And so we can be confident with the, the sheer number of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament that what we have is accurate and authoritative. But when we look at the amount of time between when it was originally written and the first manuscripts that we have, Again, for a lot of ancient writing, we're talking in hundreds of years, and in some cases thousands of years, 
have transpired between when it was originally written and the first copies that we have. And for the New Testament, we're talking in some cases uh, less than 100 years, 50 or 60 years, and in most cases between 100 and 200 years of when it was originally written. Now that may sound like a lot, but in comparison to other things that we have this evidence for, it's overwhelmingly, uh, we can have overwhelming confidence that what we have is accurate. In fact, Frederick Kenyon, who was a well-known text critic, he wrote this, it must be said, and this is the other thing that's important, listen to what Frederick, Frederick said, it must be said that although there are certainly differences in many New Testament manuscripts, not one of those differences affects a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Then he goes on to say, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds the true word of God. So I want you to be confident of that uh, this morning. And I also want you to realize that uh, you should not take my word for it. It would be a mistake for you to say, well, hey, Pastor Jeff cleared it all up for me. Uh, I would encourage you to do your own research and reading on this because you will encounter people, I can assure you, that believe the Bible is inaccurate, full of mistakes, and not authoritative. And if you don't have any answer, and it's not good enough to say, hey, there's a podcast at First Baptist Hanford where Pastor Jeff explains the whole thing, I would encourage you to know why you believe the Bible's reliable. And the evidence is there, the writing is there, it's, it just takes a little bit of work to do, I would encourage you to do it. So I, that's what I wanted to say regarding that. One other thing that I think, so then the question is, well then how did verse four get there? If it wasn't there when John originally wrote it, how did it get there? That's a good question, thanks for asking. Here's what I think. If you look at verse seven, when Jesus speaks to the man in verse seven, the man says, I, I can't get to the water. When the water is stirred, I can't get there because there's no one to help me to get to the water. If you just read that on your own, it would beg the question, what is this about the water being stirred? So what I can imagine is someone down the line that was, was translating this or making a copy of the manuscript probably made some kind of a note somewhere that said exactly what verse four says. That from time to time an angel would come down, stir the water, and people believed that they went in and they would get healed. And then I just, it, it probably got picked up by somebody and, and that's, that's the way it happened. All that to say, you can, you can take or leave verse four. We're going to leave it because NIV leaves it out. We're not gonna worry about it so much today and it doesn't really impact so much what I want to, uh, what I believe that this passage is saying to us, but I want you to be confident that you don't need to toss out your Bible today, that you can hold it with confidence and know that it's reliable. All right, so let's get back to the story. We're in John chapter 5. And these are, there's three quick uh, points I want to make or observations I want to make regarding how Jesus uh, works through the story. The first thing is this, that Jesus works with intention. I've already pointed this out, okay? Jesus doesn't find himself randomly at this pool of Bethesda. He's there for a purpose. He knows what he's doing. He's going to intentionally address some issues that need to be dealt with, both in the man's life and in the religious life, the bigger, greater religious life of the Jewish people. And so he's not there by accident. He's there with intention and he knows what he's doing. And so he asks the man, he says, do you want to get well? Now let's think about this for a minute. You're 38, you've been sitting in the same place for 38 years, waiting to get healed. 
This man maybe was born lame, maybe he became lame sometime when he was younger. He's at least 38 years old. He's been coming here for 38 years. There is a level of hopelessness I'm sure that he's experiencing because he's got nobody, no family, nobody to help him get to the water when he needs to get to the water. And Jesus has the, what, ignorance to ask, do you want to get well? Like, yeah, I do want to get well. But that, notice that that's not what the man says. First thing he says is, he makes an excuse. Uh, well, there's nobody to take me to the water uh, when the water gets stirred. And so I want to suggest that we need to think a little bit deeper on this, that, that perhaps what Jesus is asking is, are you ready to be healed? Are you ready for what will come next? How often do we get maybe comfortable? We complain about it. And, and this is what I was thinking about this morning. Let's think about somebody who's maybe uh, just deals with anger. And you're holding on to something that you're really angry about. And you, you know that you should probably let it go. But if you let it go, then you feel like you're letting this other person that made you angry, you're letting them off the hook. Um, or, or you may even be uh, thinking like, well, what would my purpose in life be if I was no longer angry? You know, I'd have to actually, you know, move on to something else. And so it's really not that, that dumb of a question because what Jesus is saying is, hey, are you ready to be well? Are you ready to make your own way in the world? Are you ready to do what happens next? And so I think it's a good question. Maybe you've grown so comfortable being where you are that you won't know how to deal with what happens next. And so Jesus is, is pushing this guy with intention about what his life is about. Second thing here is that Jesus has incredible power. I mean, we've seen miracles already. He's turned water into wine. He healed the official son last week. Even in this story and even other, some of uh, the stories earlier in John chapter 4 that Peter didn't cover last week, Jesus knew things about the woman at the well. Jesus had incredible power, and he, he reverses in an instant 38 years of paralysis in this man's life just with the word spoken. He has incredible power to change life, to change things. And God's mercy is incredibly powerful. A.W. Tozer defines mercy this way. He says, mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. That God's mercy is, impacts us right where we have our greatest need. And his power is incredible. He can heal. He can turn your life around. He, he does it over and over in the New Testament. And he uses his power with great intention. Notice a couple things about this healing. Does the man ever ask to be healed? No. Does the man ever express any faith in Jesus? No. Does the man ever say thank you to Jesus for what he did? No. Does he seem particularly impressed with what Jesus did? No. All these things that we look, there's other places in the New Testament where Jesus celebrates faith and he responds to faith. There's nothing like that going on here. Jesus heals this man for some other reason, I believe. It's not because of his faith. In fact, if you look at it, if you read it carefully, I think you, get to, you can come to the understanding that this guy didn't ever come to faith. When the religious leaders asked who healed him, and as soon as he found out who it was, he throws Jesus under the bus right away and says, it was Jesus that did this to me. And so I, I, I look at this, and I look at his compassion, his mercy, and his power, and I think this is 
for something bigger. There's something else going on here. And so I want to land this morning on this last idea that Jesus knows the real need. This is not too far from where Pastor Peter ended last week, right? This is similar to what he talked about last week. This idea that God knows what's going on. He knows our real need. And I want, to, I want you to hold on to that thought, and I want to ask you two other questions, because I don't know how you read the Bible. But when I read the Bible, there's certain questions that come to my mind. It's maybe I'm just naturally inquisitive, uh, or, you know, maybe I'm a great Bible scholar and I don't know it. But there's, there's a couple of questions that come to my mind in this story. Maybe you've asked the same question. The first question is this. I believe Jesus was perfectly capable of healing everyone at that pool. And there was hundreds of people there that had various needs, maybe even greater than this man's need of 38 years. Jesus could have healed them in an instant. He was capable, right? He was. He was capable. But he healed one person. I'm curious, why just one person? Why did Jesus heal just one person? To answer that question, I think we have to ask questions like, well, why did Jesus come in the first place? If Jesus came in the first place to heal everybody on the whole earth, then he would have done it. The fact that he didn't heal everybody in that scenario, in that situation, indicates to me that there is some other reason that Jesus came. He can heal. He could have healed. He does heal. But there must be some other reason, some other intention or purpose for why Jesus came. Otherwise, he would have done it. So that's, that's part of kind of how I think about that. And, when we, and then we have to ask you know, miracles themselves. What was the purpose of miracles? Okay, well, if he didn't come to heal everybody, what was the purpose of doing miracles? So I would encourage you to think on that. I'm not, I'm going to leave that hanging a little bit. But you need to think about, like, okay, why did Jesus come, and, and why was he doing miracles in the first place? The second question that I have that uh, is another important one is that Jesus knew it was the Sabbath, which is the worship, the Jewish day of worship and rest. He knew it was the Sabbath. He knew that healing this man on the Sabbath was going to be a problem, and yet he did it anyway. Could he have come the next day and healed this guy and not raised any, any controversy? In case you, we didn't read these verses, and they're not going to be on the screen, but if you want to look later on in, uh, the, where I left off in John chapter 5, I left off at verse 15. If you look at verse 16, it says this. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So Jesus knew what was going on. He could have healed the man on Monday or whatever. That was Saturday on Sunday, whatever the days were back then that they called him. He could have done it another day. But he did it on the Sabbath, and he, knew, and he knew that there was going to be a problem with that. Why would he do that? So I want to suggest that, that Jesus was felt the need to speak into religious practice of the day that needed to be dealt with. That there was something going on here that, that he needed to speak, that he needed to speak to. 
Because here we have religious men, all who should have rejoiced with all their hearts at the kindness that he, Jesus, demonstrated to the paralyzed man. They should have marveled at God's power. They should have wondered at what God was doing among them. But instead, they're quibbling about the fact that Jesus healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath. That he was violating the Sabbath, the holiness of the Sabbath. Paul, the apostle who wrote a lot of the New Testament later on in one of his epistles, said it this way, that people like this have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. A form of godliness and deny its power. And the Pharisees were the probably the best example of this kind of behavior. Where the Pharisees went wrong, and where men and women, even Christian men and women, go wrong, is the place where we always go wrong. We go wrong in our understanding about sin. We go wrong in our understanding about salvation and grace, and the consequences of both of those. Sin's fundamental nature is rebellion against God. It hardens our heart. It stains our heart. It influences everything that we are and everything that we do, and it separates us from God. That's what sin does. And true Christian faith, according to Scripture, is embracing God's grace, His gift of salvation, which we are completely unworthy of, by the way. But Christian faith is embracing God's grace, His love, His salvation in our life. It's nothing that we've achieved Nothing that we can do to earn. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 reminds us that, right? Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says, It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves. It's God's gift in our life. Not the result of works. So that nobody can boast. We must know that on our own, we are broken before God. And that we need restoration with Him. And we can't do that on our, own. on our own. God has to do that for us. But men lose sight of this. It's their natural instinct to lose sight of it. They begin to think differently about their relationship to God. Subtly, imperceptibly, they transform their salvation, their peace with God, their hope of His favor in the next life into a calculation of merit and reward. Suddenly, without thinking about the change that has taken place, they are thinking in terms not of what God's doing for them, but they're doing, they're performing, they're achieving, they're obeying, they're serving God as the basis of their peace with God and their hope of heaven. Now I'm going to reread that that I just read, and I'm going to change the pronouns for us. Listen carefully. But we lose sight of this. It is our natural instinct to lose sight of it. We begin to think differently about our relationship to God. Subtly, imperceptibly, we transform our salvation, our peace with God, our hope for His favor in the next life into a calculation of merit and reward. Suddenly, without thinking about the change that has taken place, we are thinking in terms not of God's doing for us, but our doing, our performing, our achieving our obeying, our serving God as the basis of our peace with God 
and our hope for heaven. This is our tendency. Our tendency is to take what God has done, his grace in our life, and bit by bit we turn it into something that we are doing. And we want to achieve something. We want to achieve this righteousness. And really to illustrate this, let's go back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were great at this. The Pharisees were the one group of religious leaders in Jesus' day. This is a group that, that sprung up between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This was a group of men that were fully committed to the law of God and wanting to achieve that law as best they could. And so they were committed to that. They had actually come up with, created 613 different laws that dealt with Jewish religious life, uh, religious practices and sacrifice, business, family, agriculture, personal purity, politics, among other things. 613 different laws. In contrast, you may recall, Jesus was asked one time what the most important commandments were, and how many did Jesus give? Two. The Pharisees had come up with 613, Jesus reduced it to two. So we have this tendency to complicate things and to create this sense of if we can just accomplish this list of things, we will be righteous enough. We're taking, we're taking uh, this view of sin that breaks us, stains us, colors us, separates us from God, and we basically domesticate it. We turn it into something that we can control. If we can just check off these lists of things and do these things, we'll be okay. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is eventually we don't need God at all. We don't need his salvation. We don't need his grace. We don't need his mercy because I can do it myself. I can do it on my own. And so when we, and, and again, we don't intentionally start out this way. It's something that gets created uh, in our life because we start thinking, I just want to do. I feel better if I can stack these things. So I can say, okay, hey, I've never done these major sins. I've never killed anybody. I've never done this or never, you know, robbed anybody or assaulted anybody. And so I'm good there. And these other lesser sins, I can stack up good, good works over here and kind of balance those out and everything's going to be good. And so we've turned religious living, Christian living, into this idea of creating peace with God through our own efforts. And it, it can't happen. It can't happen. So we, I want to kind of, as we, as we look through this situation with this man, uh, Jesus says something in, incredible in verse 14. And so Jesus, in trying to address this, comes to the man because remember, Jesus disappeared into the crowd, and then he tracks the man back down at the temple. And what does he say to him? Again, if you read this, I mean, the first few times I read this, this verse stuck out to me because it troubles me. But Jesus says in verse 14, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Like, yikes. You know, what? this is exactly the view of, of sin we kind of have, right? That sin is directly connected with everything that I do, and if I, if I keep sinning, something worse is going to happen. Here's what I think Jesus was saying, if I was to paraphrase what Jesus said. He says, man, you think your problem was 38 years of paralysis, but I'm telling you that you have a bigger problem than that. 
you have a problem with sin, which has eternal consequences. So let me take you back to my knee situation that I, that I mentioned at the very beginning. That there, there came a time where if you would have asked me what my biggest problem was in the midst of my rehabilitation and healing, I would have told you my biggest problem is I need my knee to be right. I, I, I need to be able to run. I need to be, here's the things I need. This is what I need. And what I really needed at the time was I really needed to come to terms with the fact that what if my knee never is right again? That's what I had to come to, to really deal with. Like, what if I can't walk again? What if it's, it's, you know, I'm not able to do physically some of the things I have become accustomed to doing? I had to come to terms with that. And so when we think about this, we need to recognize that God wants to ask us maybe a similar question that he asked the man, that Jesus asked the man that day. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? So what would you say is your real need today? If you were asked that question. Some of you are probably dealing with some deep hurt, some deep pain, loss. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Perhaps, you, perhaps your work situation is horrible. Maybe you have a physical or emotional condition or problem that has taken your life in a, in a direction that you didn't expect it to go. Maybe you feel like God's let you down. You trusted God, you believed in God, and he's, he's let you down. Or maybe you have incredible guilt because you've been trying to generate your own righteousness in your life and you can never get ahead of it. Now, I know you're here today. I know that there are people that are, that are in that place today. And I want to acknowledge that some of those things are very legitimate, difficult needs in your life. And I believe that God cares about that more than you know. He knows what your greatest need is. I also believe that God, more than anything else, cares about your holiness. That he wants you to be right with him. More than anything else, he wants you to be right with him. And that's the good news of the gospel today, isn't it? That Jesus did that very thing. That Jesus came to restore, to forgive, to take away guilt, pain, striving, so that we can have a relationship with God. That Jesus' death and his resurrection give us victory over sin and give us the life that God intended us to have. I don't know that if we have to keep landing on John 20, verse uh, 30 and 31, but at the end of John's gospel, Jesus says this. I, or John writes this. John says, these things I've written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in him you might have life in his name. That's why... John wrote, and that's why Jesus came. When we realize this, we can live with the kind of intention that Jesus had, that we can live in this world, we can live in this world while we live for the world to come. This is the tension we're in, right? We need to live, live in this world and deal with the problems and troubles that come this way, but we can do it while we live for the world to come.
that God has for us. And we can celebrate that. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so grateful that you have done the heavy lifting, that you have taken the work of our sin, the problem of our sin, and that you have dealt with it through Jesus Christ. And God, I pray along with some people here this morning that probably, and I confess, I have often the heart of a Pharisee, that I've turned my Christian walk into a list of things to do and, and not do. And I've become legalistic in how I view the world around me. And so God, forgive me for thinking that way. Forgive us, those of us that, that think that way. Forgive us for living that way. And then for those maybe here this morning that uh, maybe you're hearing this good news uh, for the first time or maybe you're hearing it in a different way and you're ready to respond to faith in Jesus, in his forgiveness in your life, I'd invite you to pray, to pray a prayer that sounds something like this, that God, I admit that I've been trying to do things in my own strength. I admit that I cannot measure up to uh, who you want me to be to the level of righteousness and holiness that you've desired for me. I'm a sinner, and I admit that. And secondly, God, I pray or thank you for Jesus, that, that, that I believe that you sent Jesus to die in my place so that I could have a restored and renewed relationship with you. And lastly, see, I commit to follow you with all of my heart for the rest of my life that I would honor you. God, we're so grateful for what you've done in us. We thank you that you know our real need today and that, that you want to change and transform us into the people, uh, even in the midst of trouble and trials, that you want to transform us into the people you desire us to be. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.